For August 25th, 2014, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 321. The VMAs. Schmorg, schmorg, schmorg. I have these songs. Schmorg, schmorg, schmorg. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From L.A., I'm Matt Rather, and I am joined by fellow podcasters Pete Fenzel. Hey, Pete. Hey, Matt. Happy, happy today. <laughs> Thanks, Pete. Nice of you to point it out. Uh, Mark Lee, what's going on, Mark? Back in black! I'm, I'm back. Not necessarily in black, but in whatever color you so choose. But back in black! It's a pleasure to have you back on the podcast and uh, infrequent podcaster, so he's a special treat. Jordan, Jordan, you're a special treat. I, I try to leave them wanting more. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so as we record this, uh, we um, are uh, in Inglewood, California. The uh, VMAs, the MTV Video Music Awards 2014, are going on. And the VMAs are so powerful that the Emmys rescheduled so that they wouldn't have to face off against the VMAs. The Emmys are going to, uh, are going to be tomorrow evening. And we, uh, you know, obviously we'll have live correspondence there being the uh, news organization focused on original uh, reporting that we are. But uh, at the moment, we're just, uh, we're just looking at coverage of the VMAs online because the VMAs seems to be nothing more than a pretext to make a lot of blog posts, uh, get a lot of people clicking through a lot of slideshows, serve a lot of ad impressions uh, up to the likes of, of people like us. I wonder what the, what the ratings are going to be. Um, it's enough that it scared off the Emmy. Also, I mean, I guess uh, Sunday night... Um, football i don't know they they <laughs> they don't they don't want to face off against it. the the emmys are worried about uh about their ratings and stuff and so you know they're going to tie up traffic in los angeles and they're going to uh uh start the ceremony uh broadcasting live at 5 p.m. when people on the west coast haven't even come home from work um yeah I mean, that, that's what you say. I heard it's because Brian Cranston was going to wear the same dress Iggy Azalea wore, so they had to do an emergency switch. <laughs> it's like that Jennifer Lopez dress for, from, uh, from a bunch of years ago. All right, so, uh, you know, we're which, all... Which I saw in person, by the way, at the Costume Museum in Bath, England. It was on special display a bunch of years ago. Much smaller than you would think, and not in so much a revealing way, but in terms of, like, a height way, that Jennifer Lopez dress. Uh. Uh, I thought that that Trey Parker wore it best when he came, uh, you know, when he <laughs> came to some some event dressed in it later on. All right, uh, so <laughs> we're completely outside of the demographic of MTV now, but let's uh, let's do some uh, let's do some you know uh, TMZ worthy coverage of the MTV VMAs. Uh, who's the best? Your, your heart your heart sounds so heavy as you say that, Matt. <laughs> You're like, let's let's do. Come on, we got to do some coverage of the VMAs, <laughs> guys. I'm really excited about the VMAs that are happening. Not, you know, three miles from where I sit, podcasting right now. And these kids today, and their One Directions, and their Five Seconds of Summer, and their other like uh, their other choose choose a uh, single digit numeral and a noun uh, bands. <laughs> 
<laughs> these, Get viral, these... people. Share and snack on all the content for the young people. <laughs> OMG. OMG. Z-O-M-G. WTF. VMAs. Uh, let's uh, no. Let's do this. I th- I actually think it could be kind of interesting to talk about this. So so uh, who's your who's your? Let's lift people up. Let's not uh, let's not be downers, right? Let's not be critical. Let's lift people up. Who is your best dressed VMA uh, pick? You know, uh, first in the alphabet, it's Pete Fenzel. Go for it. All right, so looking at the best dress here on the red carpet of the VMAs, I'm seeing a lot of style coming out of a lot of different directions, maybe even out of one direction. Hey-o! Huh. When I, when I want to say, judging the success of an outfit is often to me whether you think, oh, wow, I have to look at that closer. And when you lean in towards your computer screen and really focus on an outfit and it really captures your imagination or at least your uh, interpretive and comprehensive abilities, that's when you know an outfit face has truly succeeded, which is why I think the best dress of the VMAs has got to go to Wiz Khalifa for having a bunch of text on his shirt that makes you want to read it. So uh, to read the text on Wiz Khalifa's shirt, uh, Wiz Khalifa, of course, the the brilliant musician uh, from one of my personal favorite uh, lifting songs, We Own It, from Fast and Furious 6. Uh, It says, 1-800-273-8255, Marvin Gaye had attempted suicide, have been cause suicidal driver teenage commits they thought i was crazy why would john commit suicide suicidal murder it says on the side it looks like it's some sort of thing that's a cultural reference that i understand from like the 19 somethings it looks like it's got a little old-fashioned car at the bottom i'm not sure but the main point is that it's about suicide maybe that's a suicide helpline i'm going to google the number right now on Wiz Khalifa's shirt. Because we didn't actually watch the VMAs. We're just watching the snackable content that's being transmitted through the blogospheres. And I'm going to see if this number actually leads to anything meaningful. Uh, maybe please it's the let, it, please let it turn out to be like Little Caesars or something like that. <laughs> it has. It's a phone number with an Urban Dictionary entry. Um, oh, it's a suicide hotline. I wish it was a Little Caesar. It's a suicide prevention hotline is what it is. Uh, and in fact, it's a, it's a phone number with such currency. So maybe this is Wiz Khalifa responding to the death of Robin Williams by promoting awareness of the problem of suicide and trying to get people access to, which is really honestly like I, I think that I'm really proud that Wiz Khalifa decided to do that with his VMA outfit. I think that's pretty awesome because I listen to his music sometimes when I'm exercising. <laughs> And I like to be associated with positive things. Um, there's also some lady with like a bikini next to him, but I'm mostly interested in the text and the little the little picture. So yeah, so one hundred two seven three eight two five five is a suicide hotline. Uh, you can you can find their website at suicidepreventionlifeline.org. Uh, and thanks to Wiz Khalifa for really. Uh, it turns out eight two five five spells out talk, so it's one hundred two seven three talk anytime twenty four seven. So. If you feel like if you feel like you've reached a total difficult place in your life and nothing can help you, and our insights on pop culture also can't help you, that's the number you should call because we want you to be okay, so you can come back and listen next week to the podcast. So this is this uh, young lady with Wiz Khalifa is Amber Rose, and she's wearing a uh, the live blog that I'm looking at is saying that she's having her Rose McGowan moment, uh, referencing referencing Rose McGowan's. A similarly, like chainmail esque or sort of stringy 
dress when she went uh, she went to the the um, I guess the VMAs or to some award show. They all blurred together with Marilyn Manson like way back in the day, like the way back in the day, you know. Um, and and I remember an interview with Rose McGowan after. Uh, after this, saying that she had to, she couldn't sit in the limousine in her chainmail dress, in her dress with, because the, the chains would, you know, they, when you sit on something, it like, or when you like sleep on wrinkled bed sheets or something, you get these red marks where the wrinkles push into your skin, right? And she didn't want uh, chains all over her butt, so she had to like squat. Uh, holding on to the to the handle in the limo so that she wouldn't so that when she stepped out she wouldn't be covered in in giant welts from her her outfit. I wonder if Amber Rose had the same problem as Rose McGowan. How, how many chains was she worried about getting impressions marked upon her skin by? Uh, Pete, was I think it, it was more, no, it was more than one, but less than three. All right, more than one by less than three chains. <laughs> by the way, that dress—the uh, only word I can think of for that dress—is festooned. If you ever wonder what the definition of a festoon is, look at the dress of the lady standing next to Wiz Khalifa. Look at Amber Rose. Okay, that is a festooning of chainmail on that bathing suit that she's wearing. <laughs> Mark Lee next in the alphabet. Who is best dressed? I'm going to go with the uh, fetching Victoria Justice. Um, I don't know who Victoria Justice is. I don't know what kind of music she performs. Presumably, she um, makes music that is also done in video form and uh, is interested in awards, hence she is at the Video Music Awards. Uh, anyway, so like Pete, I, I, I like the fact that um, uh, what, what she's wearing here is inviting the viewer in to read something. And, and in particular, she's got like a yellow handbag or maybe a large Lego piece. Um, and it appears to say on it, hashtag, hashtag. In other words, like the pound symbol and then following that, the letters that spell out hashtag. Um, and if she's gotten so viral, it's spreading. <laughs> Yeah, so if I'm if I'm reading this correctly, I think she's been listening to our various podcasts, and she's sort of internalized the concept of the Uberus, the pop culture um, uh, a monster tale, which sort of continues to eat itself. Um, and she has sort of unlocked um, the ultimate hashtag on Twitter, which is simply hashtag hashtag. Right, you know, everything is hashtag. Everything is spreadable. Everything is snackable and social. Um, she's cracked the code, you guys. I think she's got it, and I hope she wins a video music award tonight, and uh, you get to see that little baggy or Lego piece that says hashtag hashtag on it some more, because it's really, it, it, it really encapsul- encapsulates the moment. This moment, which also gives us the television show Selfie, which we might talk about uh, in, in a little bit. I have a question but about, about hashtags li- later on. I, I, I don't want to... Uh... I don't want to interrupt you, but so so you chose a uh, you chose a text based uh, you chose a text based outfit as well. You're you're continuing the trend, Mark, for for our predilection for text based uh, fashion. Uh, yeah, I mean uh, that's that's what we do here at Overthinking It, right? We uh, we examine the text. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Good, <laughs> excellent point, uh, Jordan Stokes. You are next in the alphabet. Who who wore it best? I do find it funny how we've decided that we're going to to try to read fashion for this podcast, and then it's like you know if all you have is a hammer, let's find the outfits with words on them. Um, <laughs> I think. <laughs> I think that uh, that the best dressed is Jeremy Scott, who is apparently a fashion designer, so we ought to know, who showed up wearing a bright yellow uh, cutaway coat with tails um, and no shirt underneath it. 
which which makes it a kind of like sartorial anti-mullet, right? There's a, it's a business in the back, party in the front. Um, and then there's a smiley face on the back of his jacket, so that it's a little bit of a party in the back anyway. Uh, I think that this is great because... You know, when you go to a red carpet, you're not dressing up to look like a human. You're dressing up to cause the biggest splash that you can and get people to pay attention to you for a couple of minutes, you know? Um, and I think this is especially true if you're a fashion designer and you make your, your money by getting people to want to uh, hire you to make them stand out in the same kind of way. So he needs to go, like, even huger. And with the color, with the the emoticon um, and with the sort of incongruity of the very, very formal cut and then like no shirt underneath it. I think he's got a real winner there. So that's my, that's my pick. Excellent. Uh, I, I mean, the, the, the tuxedo is yellow and I am told that school buses are yellow um, because the eye can notice them and pick them out from a crowd. So uh, he, he is picking up lessons from the small children transportation industry and I salute him for that. I, I'm, I'm wondering about hashtags still, you know. So let me uh, let me give mine. Uh, mine is mine is Demi Lovato, uh, who I think is wearing a, a sort of interesting interesting getup. Um, with with her, uh, she has that haircut where and and it involves a haircut. I don't know if this is a new haircut because uh, I don't really follow Demi Lovato's sort of day to day, other than being aware of her. But uh, she has the sides, uh, one side of her head shaved really short, maybe both. You can't see, but on top her hair is long, and so it's uh, you know falling over, falling over to one side. It has kind of a punk. Uh, uh, has has sort of a punk look, but she's wearing this. Um, uh, she's wearing this dress. It's the designer is not identified, but uh, it's a. Um, it it has almost a, like a business suit kind of silhouette, um, almost kind of like a jacket, uh, jacket and and skirt, long skirt vibe. Though I think it's I think it's one dress. Something about the way the the uh the neckline drapes but but wearing nothing under it so the neckline so the neckline is is very plunging and reveals a lot of uh a lot of cleavage so there's this interesting like you know dowdy dowdy kind of business suit versus sort of young and provocative uh thing going on and and a little touch of punk with the the shaved head i don't know it doesn't have any it doesn't have any writing uh on it i just think it's an interesting looking uh, interesting looking outfit, and maybe you know maybe only in the particular picture that uh, that they have online of it I just think it 's um, uh, i don 't know I think it 's pretty cool Pete you wrote about demi Lovato before for the uh, uh, for the site, but she 's sort of uh, fallen off uh, fallen off our radar a little bit i guess yeah, I mean I still follow her on Twitter. Uh, which um, of course causes people who discover this no end of amusement oh so you 're an ex- um, so you 're an expert. I mean, I haven't checked her Twitter in, you know, a couple months. I think at one point she was asking what songs she should play at her, uh, at her new tour that she's planning. So she has a big new tour that's coming up. Maybe it already started. Maybe it didn't. And I, I really recommended that she play uh, 
Coming Out of the Dark by Gloria Estefan. I think she should play more Gloria Estefan in general, uh, just as a sort of uh, as a sort of uh, semi Latina American pop icon, uh, and also just because of the way the voice works. But yeah, and then there were other friends of mine who kind of weighed in and also advised Demi Lovato to play Gloria Estefan. Um, but I don't think that's necessarily going to happen. Uh, but yeah, you know, like um, the one thing I, I mean, the the thing that comes to mind when I look at Demi Lovato's outfit. Is the is Natalie Dormer's haircut for uh, Mockingjay, right? Yeah. Which was making some headlines before, and it's a variation of the undercut, right? Which is the Macklemore haircut, uh, affectionately called, right? Well, this is sort of a half undercut where only one side of your head is shaved and it sort of is draped over the other side. It's kind of like a you sort of look like Fabio got hit with an axe. Is this right? more of a more of a Skrillex than a Macklemore, perhaps? <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely more of a Skrillex. I think, yeah, you're right. Skrillex totally popularized this. Uh, this particular style of haircut. Um, but yeah, but there's a bunch of them, right? There's, there, there are a few of uh, going through the pictures. Aren't there some other like undercuts going on? I guess she's, hers is by far the most aggressive, I guess. Um, I'm trying to think. Well, maybe on dudes with headbands. Like Sam, no, never mind. It's a it's a bold move, The I mean, the undercut, yeah. right? Like it, it takes a while for that to, uh, that to grow out, you know? I, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, I, uh, I, re- I recall I was always scared of cutting any of my hair short. You you recall that in college I had extraordinarily long hair, and uh, I had been growing it since I was thirteen, and I, I grew it down to the to the small of my back. Then when we went to college, and when you knew me, I got a conservative haircut. I got it cut off to just below my just below my shoulders. I don't know if people I don't know, I actually don't know if the overthinking universe knows that about me that I had uh, extraordinarily long you know Fabio esque blonde hair uh for uh 10 years there that and and i was always i was always afraid to to uh cut any part of it off because i was afraid it never it never would grow back and and in 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 fact i was right because when i did cut it uh in my 20s i started losing all my hair and and uh ended up in the situation i'm in now right right yeah you look like saber (laughs) god's undercut <laughs> yeah, or, or yeah, I guess it's not under anything. It's over. It's right. It's right on top. It's the the overcut. Sure, um, it would be a particularly unfortunate male pattern baldness that started in from one side of your head, really aggressively, just like from the left or something. Though it would be somehow more fashionable, don't you think? Well, I kind of think that the the undercut is what's going to bring back hats, right? Like. Kennedy took them out of American life, and when this hairstyle goes away, suddenly everyone in Hollywood will be like sporting a hat, and, and you know, and I'll be able to go outside without getting a sunburn on the top of my head for once, which will be great. Jordan, do you mean well, do you mean President I, Kennedy, or do you mean uh, do you mean Kennedy the MTV VJ? As far as Wikipedia is concerned, they're the same person. So, yeah. <laughs> There's no disambiguation. <laughs> Kennedy was a president of the United States and was a uh, MTV VJ for, during the early 90s. Yeah. But isn't that what people say, that like uh, the, the man's hat went away after the, the Kennedy-Nixon debate, where Kennedy showed up unhatted and everyone was like, oh, look at, look at his hair, you uh-huh. know? Yeah, that's uh, I've I've gone I've gone back to it honestly this summer ju- just so as to keep the the death dealing rays of the sun off of my uh, uh, off of the top of my head, you know. And I I uh, I found a I found an obnoxious little hipster trilby hat that I've been that I've been wearing around the neighborhood. So you know, look out. For, are you are you uh, concerned with like the cultural baggage of the trilby or fedora? 
Wait, like someone's like, going to mistake me for a 1920s gangster, you mean? Or No, like someone's going to call you a neckbeard or assume that you're like a virulent misogynist or something See, like that. Because is, isn't that what fedoras are associated with these days? So well, I no, feel like it's yeah. very, very strongly associated with that in one tiny little corner of the internet. I'm not sure that that idea has any kind of real currency. Well, a- any kind of main- mainstream currency, you mean, right? Like, yeah, yeah. That- but, like people on the street are going to to understand that reference. Uh, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but that's what I always thought. And what's the what's the what's the sort of uh, etiology of that particular synecdoche? Boom! Greek words on the overthinking it podcast. We're back, baby. We're excited about something now. <laughs> well, I'll go to the Urban Dictionary entry for fedora. Uh, let's see. Um, a hat that shouldn't be worn by anyone who isn't Indiana Jones or Michael Jackson. The sweet hat the Indiana Jones wears. There appears to be a lot of tension. Okay, mm-hmm. so here's a definition. This is definition four of the fedora. Uh, in, in Urban Dictionary, as of right now, and is written by Excalibur 201 on September 15th, 2013. In the first half of the 20th century, this was a hat synonymous with manly style. It was about looking cool without appearing juvenile. In present times, the fedora is a trademark of the socially inept beta male. He is attempting to distance himself from pop culture with the distinct style of past fashion, but he captures none of the suave and only comes off looking like an oblivious, pompous fool. This is especially the case when it's a low-quality fedora coupled with unfashionable clothes and an un- Kempt appearance. Modern fedora wearers are typically associated with uh, with Chan, like asterisk Chan, internet culture, and Asperger syndrome. If you are not Humphrey Bogart, you should not wear a fedora. Wow. So this is, this definition is an exercise in question begging. To borrow a, a phrase from from uh, from uh, Pete Fenzel, right? Because it like it replaces with assertion. Uh, the, what was supposed to be argumentation for, uh, you know, for why the thing is, is called the, th- the thing that it is, right? Like, uh, fedoras and, and trilby hats are associated with, uh, uh, with socially inept, you know, Stardot Chan, uh, users. I, I, I beg to differ, right? Like, I don't know. I associate fedoras and trilbies with the residents of Silver Lake and Williamsburg, you know? And, and I mean, even like maybe half a dozen, half a dozen years ago, uh, and, and belonging to that being a style icon of, of that, uh, honestly, I don't know. Maybe fashion has, has moved away. Maybe it's moved down market, I guess. Um, but I, I, I don't really hang out in that, in that, in that culture. Um, so I, I guess I wouldn't know. What did you guys think of Taylor Swift's outfit at the VMAs with that little thing with the, I don't even know how to describe it. It's not a dress. I guess it's a leotard. It's a, it's although a, I'm not sure. I believe, I believe the term is romper. A romper. Yes. Oh, I've heard that before. That's right. Yes, yes, yes. I believe it's called a romper, but it's it's extraordinarily uh, short. So it looks like it looks like she like came straight from gymnastics practice. Right. Yeah, I, I have an infant son. We call those onesies. <laughs> <laughs> it, it has long sleeves too, right? Does the, do onesies generally have sleeves like that? They can be actually. They have long sleeved onesies. It's a little bit odd that you sort of leave the legs hanging out to dry, um, but you know the babies don't seem to mind, and neither does Taylor. <laughs> um, so, so Jordan, what is the what are the best dressed babies wearing this season? Is it similar to what they're wearing at the VMAs, or are they wearing different things? Is there another niche of fashion culture? 
Yeah, like they're they're festooned with chainmail. <laughs> hey guys, guys, I'm looking at this picture of, of Terra Swift here, right? So keep in mind, there's this like long sleeve romper thing going on here, right? Um, and you know what this reminds me of? Um, like the the female Starfleet uniforms from the old school Star Trek. Didn't they yeah. have long sleeves and extremely short skirts? Mm-hmm. Well, the I mean, did you look at the? Did you see uh, Nicki Minaj's shakes uh, snakeskin? I nearly said Shakespeare. I don't know. That, that's an interesting thing, D- guys. Did you see Nicki Minaj do Shakespeare? Because she was the most convincing Viola in Twelfth Night that I have ever uh, had the honor of encountering. No, um, did you see the snakeskin uh, uh, dress? It, it had that vibe to me too. Of the, it had a like a Uhura vibe uh, to me as well. Interesting. Uh. Well, it was interesting also that 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 um, the particular fashion of '60s Star Trek was one of the big things that was brought over by J.J. Abrams' Star Trek reboot, right? Uh, and and it's something that was sort of seen as cool, right? I mean, if you ask twenty years ago, what's the coolest thing about the original series of Star Trek? And a lot of people would have said the outfits, right? But now there's these things. There's mod. Is it mod? Would that be a, a proper way of characterizing this kind of style? Um, it has a certain uh, a certain appeal again. Maybe it's like, but it's like post Austin Powers. It's like it's gone away and come back again, like yet another time. Um, it's interesting. Yeah. I need to find. Wait, sorry, I don't see. Uh, I don't see Nicki Minaj VMA outfit. We're gonna have to look at the, that. Uh, the Star Trek fashion was always like a little bit mod, but a kind of militarized mod. I would say, um, and that military aspect does seem to be there in some of this stuff too. Maybe. Yeah, um, it's, a, it's a little bit more severe than the stuff I, I picture when I like, you know, plug Quadrophenia into Google Image Search. <laughs> in uh, in um, when uh, TNG first premiered, right? Like it, it was uh, that they they had I think Troy maybe wearing the that like mini dress uniform, and, uh, and but to to make it you know to make it modern and updated for a uh, a non retrograde politics of uh of tng right she um uh it was a unisex uniform so i think like one time on star trek the next generation there was a dude who walked by in a uh there was a dude who walked by in a in a mini dress um yeah and uh they did that once and i think they thought yeah let's not do that again so should we place the Taylor Swift romper in a little bit of the context of where she is in the popular culture these days? Yeah. Um, are, you, are you talking about your jams? Oh, my jam of jams. <laughs> <laughs> not not like not like a pajama, but like I'm talking about a jam as in like you know a song that MTV would play. Um, right. She, not like a preserve, not like a fruit preserve. Nor that, yeah. nor that. No. <laughs> um, although suppose you could eat that while listening to your jams. Um, you can eat jam while you jam. Um, but anyway, so Taylor Swift has a new song out, a new music video um, called Shake It Off, I believe. Um, and, uh, you know, Taylor Swift has, has for many years been sort of reinventing herself and distancing herself from her uh, original country picking Tim McGraw, um, crooning, uh, singing about Tim McGraw days. Um, and this just seems to be a further step in that process for her. Um, to uh, you know, to distance herself from her uh, from her earlier career. So I'm not quite sure if there's more to say about it than that. Um, but I just wanted to put that out there, um, rather than uh, have uh, people out there assume that Taylor Swift is wearing a Starfleet romper just for no reason. <laughs> 
Well, I mean, it would be interesting if she had like done that song and then showed up at this with a cowboy hat, right? That would have been sending a different kind of message. But <laughs> she, she doesn't, I mean, this is kind of an interesting question to me, actually, is whether you can call her country anymore at this point. I don't know. I mean, Mark, you're, I feel like you are the Taylor Swift uh, expert here. I mean, to the extent that there, to the extent that there is Taylor Swift expertise to be had here. I mean, like, I, I haven't like. Oh, come on, you're ma- I, Taylor. Swift I haven't. I, I love Taylor Swift. I haven't mainlined all of her songs, like her entire so- song catalog, to say authoritatively. Like, you know, sixty percent of her songs feature, uh, you know, country elements, like you know, banjos and fiddles that have that little you know uh sort of sliding effect going on that you that we associate with uh with with country music so i I can't quite weigh in in that way other than to say that her um the first string most her most recent string of hits um have not had any country really any country um uh, influence to to speak of at all with the small exception of uh, we are never ever getting back together had just a sort of a tiny bit of it but uh it's 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 a very different sound from uh you belong with me uh from a few years ago that uh, had had a was a big hit of hers and had a lot of country sound in it are you referring to the floyd lick uh i'm not sure what is the floyd lick do you well actually uh probably jordan could explain it better than i can but it's a uh it's a grace note it's not really a lick in the sense of being like a you know multi note pattern. It's a grace note where when you play a major triad, you have a uh, for the the middle note the three the third scale degree. You um, you have a grace note from the second scale degree, and it makes that kind of twangy like prang kind of country sound that you're. That is exactly uh, what I'm what I'm thinking about. Yeah, uh, that that you're used to. I don't know, Jordan. Can you can probably explain it better than I can, or give a fuller context for it. No man, I never heard that term before. I'm uh, I'm getting schooled. <laughs> Go on. Is it is it named for Pink Floyd? That doesn't seem likely, but that's the only context I, I can put it in. Uh, I think it's. Um, uh, oh, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna look it up. Um, Freud Floyd Kramer country piano, uh, and I think it's I the, and I think it is the thing that I describe when you uh, when you. Um, when you may, it's kind of like a hammer on, right? Like when you play the major triad, you you uh, play it as a sus two, but immediately uh, immediately drop a digit on the drop a digit on the three. Well, let me try to demonstrate on the guitar here, so we uh, give our uh, listeners who don't oh, know anything good. at all about music theory some because sense of, right? I don't have a. Is it like the that yep, thing, or that's is it like the a, one, or even like a. That that's that's extreme. It's really just the middle. It's really just the middle note. You know, yeah. And you, can't you? I mean, can't you just hear that? I mean, can't you just hear that? You know, I don't know. Can you? Can you give us like eight bars of country music with that kind of thing in it? Sure. Yeah, that's that's. <laughs> That's some country guitar, right? <laughs> um, yeah, I guess it's named after Floyd Kramer on the on the uh, on the piano. I'll drop links to all this stuff in the. Uh, I'll drop links to all this stuff in in the show notes. Um, so yeah, I mean those those. Uh, I, I agree that it's that she has like a lot more reference to to sort of electro pop. 
um, and stuff like that rather than than uh, rather than country music. Even though she sort of came out of a country milieu and and was like the the like the country singer prodigy who you know wrote her own songs and and was a musician and and stuff like that. I don't know. Uh, yeah. And and here she she actually hired Max Martin for this one, I believe. Right. Is that <laughs> sad? So he, remind me who Max Martin is. Max Martin is the uh, the Svengali behind "Hit Me, Baby, One More Time." Ah, yes. Okay, there you go. Nice. And, and like, and literally everything else. Yeah. Well, for a very, very particular definition of everything that applies <laughs> to you. Uh, yeah, I guess. I guess so. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I mean I he's always... one of like the, the the Swedish guys, right? Like the Swedish guys who are responsible for most of what we consider to be pop music in like the '90s and 2000s. Yeah, yeah. So like yeah, yeah. A, a lot of uh, a lot of Britney Spears, a lot of Christina Aguilera, a lot of like Justin Timberlake, probably many other people that I'm not thinking of. And there's you know there's a lineage of that stuff. Like uh, Lady Gaga works with a lot of Swedish producers who I assume cut their teeth like getting Max Martin his coffee back in the day. Um, but yeah, so he's he's still working, and this is the guy that Taylor Swift went to, or or someone went to, right? When she decided she was going to leave country behind. Mm-hmm. The other guys that Max Martin has, the other people that Max Martin has produced for this year alone, um, Cher, Lloyd, I don't know who that is, MKTO, GRL, Pitbull, uh, Bonnie McGee, Shakira, Ariana Grande, Jennifer Lopez, uh, Gavin DeGraw. Uh, Rabble, Jesse J, Zlatan. I don't know who half of those people are, but a bunch of them are like, oh. And also, it was a bunch of Katy Perry last year. He does a lot of Katy Perry. He does a lot of Kesha, right? Like, um, let's just let's just stuff. put it this way: he was he was winning ASCAP Songwriter of the Year back in 1999, uh, but he won ASCAP Songwriter of the Year in 2011, and he won ASCAP Songwriter of the Year in 2012. He won ASCAP Songwriter of the Year in 2013, and he won ASCAP Songwriter of the Year in 2014. Guys, uh, there's only one explanation for this. You guys are, are familiar with the story of uh, Hot Tub Time Machine, right? Where the, where the Craig Ferguson character is sort of a failed musician in the present day, um, goes back in time to the 80s with all of the hits uh, of, the ensu- of the ensuing decades. And um, in the preview for uh, Hot Tub Time Machine 2, it is revealed that he's just like year after year churning out all the big hits that other people have written and passing them off as his own that is clearly what is happening here max martin is a time traveler how did he write them down like did he have like full arrangement of all of them did he have recordings like how did he figure out the production for all those songs you mean the Craig Ferguson character? Yeah, within the world of Hot Tub Time Machine, within the world of the interstitial material between Hot Tub Time Machine 1 and Hot Tub... Wait, is there a Hot Tub Time Machine 2? Or is it a preview? I haven't seen Hot Tub Time Machine, so... I mean, it's the same way that, you know, um, what's-his-face George Martin, or um, or this Max Martin guy, for that matter, uh, you George know, goes, in, goes, in, goes in, Yeah, George R. R. Martin. Goes, goes into the studio, um, you know, with just an idea in his head and then communicates that to other musicians whether it's through a combination of uh written parts and like you know play it like this or do that do 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 thing by the way hot top time machine 2 is supposed to come out in december of this year which i was not aware of i did not know that that was the thing the the legend continues um yeah yeah, guys i i think that this is okay but i'm really a fan of max rr martin who took pop, <laughs> took pop music back to a gritty reboot, uh, yep. you know? Of like, you know, and just plays Delta Blues is what it's what it all is. It's just <laughs> it's like uh, it's like muddy waters or something up uh, up in here. 
I was just about like Kesha uh, drinking and driving and suffering horrible debilitating accidents. Yeah, I was, I was trying to like figure out the joke about how all of your favorite musicians die, but that's a thing that happens in real life, and it's not funny. So. <laughs> <laughs> but not the Backstreet Boys. <laughs> so, so that's the premise of Hot Tub Time Machine too. Is like he goes back and and. Uh, takes credit for the whole music. <laughs> Sorry, so let me, I think I'm, I'm being out of crucial detail here. Uh, the plot of Hot Tub Time, the first Hot Tub Time Machine is that, um, well, yeah, they go back in time um, to 1980-whatever, and uh, uh, they sort of read and have it themselves in that timeline, and then it fast, flashes back forward again to themselves in the future, um, uh, you know, having been affected by the actions they took in the past. So Craig Ferguson... Uh, took all the songs back with him in the past and then over the years uh, became an incredibly successful uh, musician, turning out the hits of others. Oh, so this is from this, like the third act of Hot Tub Time Machine 1. Yeah, and carries uh, over into Hot Tub Time Machine 2. And it carries over into Hot Tub Time Machine 2. Yeah. What do they, do they have to reverse everything in Hot Tub Time Machine 2? Is there like a horrible paradox that they have to... I interrupted you, Jordan. Sorry, did you have some, a better question <laughs> that you were asking? Oh, I mean, I, I just think that that's a... I know it's supposed to be a joke and you're not really meant to take it seriously, but I, I think that it's a, a ludicrous idea that any person could have walked into the music industry from like from you know walks into a talent agent's office somewhere in uh, in LA in 1980 and is like i've got this song and it goes you know you've got me feeling emotions or it's billy <laughs> jean or something like that and just by having the song they would be able to catapult themselves to the top of the music industry you know like it, it doesn't work like that it doesn't work like that at all it's almost a it, it, it's a brutal satire of the way that the music industry <laughs> actually works. If you know enough about the way that the music industry actually works, how, so I, wait, I'm, I'm afraid I don't. Yeah. So how, how does yeah, I mean, it yeah, so just to be work? just to be clear, it's not like this guy Max Martin like just showed up one day from Sweden and, and was like smorg smorg smorg. I have these songs smorg smorg smorg. Well, and I mean, so if uh, if Craig Ferguson had gone back in time with these these songs, the best that he could have become is Max Martin, right? They still would have given them to Michael Jackson to sing. Right, but that's not what they do. They have him being like a, a pop star, and they're all his hits. I, I can't. I don't remember that detail uh, quite precisely, but I think yeah, it's probably the former. Rather, he is a star himself, rather than he is a, a type of Max Martin. You you yeah. do have to go to the. You do have to go to uh, that. You know, uh, cinema verite documentary on the music industry, uh, ABC series Nashville, to get a good uh, <laughs> to get a good picture of this, right? Because in that show, there are characters who are who actually inhabit the job descriptions in the actual music industry. So there are like songwriters who have publishing deals, not like record contracts, but but publishing deals where you know they get. Uh, uh, they get um, sort of licensing almost from from their music, and then they try to pitch their songs to uh, to famous artists or to the managers of famous artists. And you have people who perform other people's songs, and you have singer songwriters, and you have producers whose you know uh, whose job is to sleep with the talent mostly in that show. But but I digress. Right, right. It's a documentary filmed in real time. <laughs> um, it, it's always sort of interesting that uh, country music is the one place left where there are really songwriters. I mean, it's not the one place left. It's the one music industry where it is accepted that performing songs and writing songs are very different things, and there's an absolutely no shame attached to having someone else write your music whereas everywhere else like you need to have your songwriting credit because it makes you look less serious if you're just performing other people's music like even 
Yeah, it's because it, I mean, well, because it's funny. Uh, Ryan Sheely and I talked about Dylan on the TFT podcast a little a little while back, and right there's sort of a tradition of of traditional American music, of folk music, right? Of of you know the songs kind of being community property, and it's the it's the the performance of the songs almost as like a community activity, right? Like as a as a sort of musical potluck that that. Um, is the is the unique value that the that the performers provide so so that sort of persists i guess right rather than sort of identity based uh, the other, the other way is like the identity based forms of music, right? Is the sort of singer songwriter, uh, model that, um, I don't know that, that, uh, I guess never really has been the entire story in the pop music industry, but that, uh, gained a lot of currency with, um, I don't know, Carol King, who actually had been like a brill building songwriter toiling in the, the, the salt mines, you know, singing hi ho, hi ho, as she brought her songs uh, to other people to sing. Uh, and maybe James Taylor and like Joni Mitchell and, and, and people like that. But, uh, be the, but the country music world seems closer to that, like traditional American folk music. Um, don't you think? Well, yeah, it's got like it's got one foot in that, and then it also still has like a foot firmly in Tin Pan Alley, and for whatever reason, that model just stuck around longer in country. Yeah. Um, but it, it's sort of funny that Taylor Swift is like, what are the notable things about her at the beginning of her career? Well, she was a country musician, and she wrote her own music, and like you don't have to write your own music as a country musician. You get like style points, but it's it's not a, a core value in the same way that it is for like indie rock or something like that yeah and let us remind um our, our listeners that matt had described that song writing as you know essentially you know her, her like live journal writing uh, transcribed into song and, and matt was not particularly keen on it's not that her her lyric writing wasn't the thing that that bothered me like one of the things i like in music is melody right like uh, and, and I won't say like I think there's a danger in every art. I'm sure I've talked about this on on the podcast before. I think there's a, a, because we've all talked about everything on the podcast before. We're we're closing in on six years. Uh, my we few we happy few we band of brothers. Um, for he today who casts his part with me shall be my brother. <laughs> be he ne'er so vile, this podcast shall gentle his condition. Uh, his condition to make it scan um, the uh, right like the thing the thing I like is is melody uh, I like sophisticated melody right like I like a a nice Sondheim melody, uh, though I think there is a danger to connoisseurship in in any art because you you end up liking things that aren 't actually pleasurable. Um, Right, because Hang on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we need to we'll put a pin in that. We'll come back to it. But go on, you were saying uh, you end up liking things which aren't actually pleasurable because uh, because of their sophistication, right? Because they sort of flatter your your prejudices about about the art. Um, so I, I recognize that there's that there's a danger in that. Uh, you know, I know we all know we actually met in a band, right? Like a, a thing or two about music, and so my tastes may not be. Uh, may not be all that Catholic, um, but but that sort of poppy sound. I mean, I would identify. Uh, 
I would identify Taylor Swift with poppiness from the very beginning because her melodies were had that sort of poppy chant quality, right? Where you're kind of on one note and you sing the one note and sometimes you sing another note that you sing and there's two notes now and two notes now and you go to the bridge and when you go to the bridge it's the four chord everyone singing the four chord and now the bridge and you is can over. see the lot of the that on a corner something something and sing the melody but can't you see she writes songs that are easy I don't know. There was a. I mean, there was a. There was a minor six chord in that progression, right? Like that's you know that's the height of sophistication. <laughs> so hang on. Let me let me tell you something about that though, um, because one of the things that's cool about the new Taylor Swift, Swift song is that although the the sounds and the technology are Max Martin and very not country, it's a, a new new direction for her. It's it's still very recognizably a Taylor Swift melody because it does the same thing where she sings one melodic idea and then the harmony changes underneath it and she sings the same melody over the new harmony, which is something that you can find in like a lot of her songs. But that's not, um, that's not a pop music idea. That's a blues idea. Like if you go back to, to something like um, Shake, Rattle and Roll, right, which is like a early, early rock song where it's very clearly blues, it's the same thing. The shake, rattle and roll, shake, rattle and roll. And then you go to the four chord, harmony changes underneath it, and you just go shake, rattle and roll again. So that's, that's bone deep in American vernacular music. It's not a... I, I think that you're you're doing her a disservice by saying that that's a, a weakness. It's you know you can not like it, but it's a it's yeah. it's a grammar feature, not a bug, Matt. Feature, not a bug. <laughs> uh, I guess so. I I mean I don't know. I like I I like country songwriters. I for whatever reason Willie Nelson is coming to mind a lot, and they're like Willie Nelson songs that are. That have like extraordinarily sophisticated melodies, right? Like compared with compared with the pop music uh, that was current at the time that that um, that he was writing it, you know. I and uh, I don't know. I'm going to put you on the spot. Do you, do you have a Do you have a melody in particular, a song in particular? Uh, I'm. Um, no, <laughs> I remember thinking. I, I remember thinking of the. I, uh, Willie Nelson. You know, it's a, a really good, a really good country melody. Is uh, Kenny Rogers? You picked a fine time to leave me, Lucille. Uh-huh. That's a great one. Uh, you were always on my mind. Um, that's an Elvis. <laughs> that's an Elvis I'm song. <laughs> Isn't that? I mean, I actually, we actually, I did a karaoke night once where we just all sang different versions of "Always on My Mind" like over and over again. <laughs> I mean, I well, no, I mean, it's an Elvis song, but Willie Nelson. That's like it was one of Willie Nelson's biggest hits, and he won a Grammy for it, like in the '80s, right? As a as a cover of the old Elvis song, right? But it's not originally Elvis. Of course, stole everything at gunpoint from oh, black people. Here's the one right? I I knew I had Willie Nelson on the brain for a reason because I've d- I've done this. I've done this experiment before. Crazy, right? Crazy, I'm crazy for feeling so lonely that I wonder what I do. I'm crazy for trying, crazy for trying, crazy for loving you. That's all over the place for a, I mean, for a pop song. Can you imagine Taylor Swift singing that? Or writing uh, that? Yeah, yeah. Well, she Patsy Klein. She probably covers it. But, well, yeah, that's the, famous, that's the famous recording of it, right? 
yeah. uh, that was the the like the uh, you know chart topping single uh, version. Leanne Rhymes sang it, I guess. Also, uh, also, I don't know. Maybe Taylor Swift covers it. Also, there's your there's your Willie Nelson song with an awesome melody, Jordan. That is a very good melody. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> I mean, you all heard it <laughs> just now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I heard it a lot when I played one of the Grand Theft Auto games. I have like a very vivid memory of like launching a car off of an improbably tall hill and that moment of it hanging in the air in sort of beautiful freeform silence as Patsy Cline is like crazy for love. Smash right into the ground. Um, that's how I encountered a lot of this music. I always felt like the the real prime attraction of the Grand Theft Auto games is sort of creating these little micro music videos of stylized violence over like over the soundtrack because they have so, they have such good songs there. Like th- those are always the the moments that stick with me. Is like you know the, the what was it? There was someone I can't remember whether this was this was Josh or someone was playing one of the games in college when they jumped out of a helicopter that was playing uh, I Can Feel It Coming Through the Air Tonight and landed on top of a car that was also playing I Can Feel It Coming Through the Air Tonight. <laughs> 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 but Jordan, what were, you, what were you going to say about... about Sorry. About uh, connoisseurship and, and how we, we, start to like, uh, we start to like things that aren't actually fun. Well, how, how is it possible to like something that isn't actually fun? Yeah. Well, right. I mean, I guess your idea. My my point is that your idea of fun gets out, uh, gets out of sync with the the mainstream, and you uh, right like gets out of sync with whatever the kind of the innate or instinctive enjoyment of the uh, of the thing is. Though I'm I'm put in mind of of the uh, um, the introduction in my edition of Roland Barthes uh, S S Z, which my uh, my. Uh, high school English teacher always taught called SZ and would make fun of us if we called it SZ. So I, I know that book in my, in, in my life as SZ. Um, and, uh, and apparently one of the uh, early reviews of SZ said, uh, it will, you know, it will be of considerable interest to those who have no instinctive enjoyment of literature and the, the introduction, um, to the edition that I have, the paperback edition that I have in translation, said, instinctive enjoyment of literature. Surely the entire career of Roland Barthes exists to unmask so naive uh, a sentiment as instinctive enjoyment of literature. So maybe I'm partaking in, you know, in the same fallacy, right? Like that there is a, there is a good natural uh, enjoyment of art forms like, like music and it is, in some sense, perverted uh, by the intimate knowledge of the art form, which makes you like things that are that uh, you know your fellow man uh, would not like, lacking your sophistication and erudition. I always thought that the title of that book was pronounced. <laughs> <laughs> um, hey, can I ask you guys a question about hashtags? I, Go for do, it. Do, do yeah. you find do you find oh, you them, don't mind if I retweet it? I'm retweet this question. <laughs> are are they? Do you find them useful for anything? Right, like the the they they've taken over. Right, like uh, a hashtag was invented by a guy named uh, uh, Chris Messina um, to you know categorize Twitter when Twitter was a much smaller sort of 
uh, tech savvy um, kind of echo chamber more than more than the kind of mass media phenomenon that that it is now, and you could sort of tag things with with a topic so that you so that you could search. Um, so that you could search for the topic and and Chris Messina, not the actor Chris Messina, by the way, the uh, the technologist. Um, uh, so uh, so he uh, he created this thing and and it's been sort of vulgarized, right? Where where on the one hand, sort of marketing people and and on the other hand, uh, nor, uh, normal people whose highest aspiration on social media seems to be to make themselves indistinguishable from marketing. Um, have have co-opted this have co-opted this practice uh, you know and and sort of used it but I've never right like I, I've never clicked on a hashtag in my life I've I've searched for hashtags when I'm at things like a technology conference and it's like all the tweets for this conference are going to be in a back channel organized by this hashtag so you can search for it and have a feed of what your fellow conference goers are saying without following them but like I've never clicked on a hashtag I've never like clicked on a hashtag and read through several pages of tweets on a hashtag I've never clicked on a hashtag read through several pages of tweets on that hashtag and like like found somebody to follow or found a brand I like based on that hashtag. I mean, is it is it is that a behavior that you that you do? Do you find it useful at all in in your own lives? I mean, I use hashtags for a couple different things. Um, well, first, if you follow overthinking it, you know we hashtag when we live tweet. So hashtag when you live tweet is useful because you can then put the tweets in order and you might have missed something that was out of order or also in a tweet deck or some other kind of, uh, you know, client, I guess, you can set up a column and you can read a live tweet as it goes and you can find maybe other people contribute to it and they add the same hashtags. So it, it, if you, you're using Twitter as like a real time platform for commentary, then hashtags are, I find, pretty useful. Uh, another related example is jokes. If you get involved in Twitter joke threads, you know, such as like, you know, uh, you know, hound, you know, hound musicals, and it'll be like, you know, be Glesmis Robs or whatever. I can't even think of a good one off the top of my head. But you know what I mean? Like they do all these like portmanteau jokes. Yeah, exactly. It's like uh, Scottish Terrier Miss Saigon, and that's not going to work. Um, Sc- Scottish Terrier in town, right? There you go. Uh, <laughs> is, would be like a hashtag hashtag doggy musicals. Right? Or you'd be like, um, uh, well, if we, you want to, what's up? The one that we did uh, was uh, almost about a, oh, many months ago was a hashtag death metal oldies. Yes. Uh, and so it's it's you do you you can do that and then you can look at it and you can laugh at all the ones people are coming up with and stuff and it's you can also see what other people are generally saying so you don't make the same joke that everybody else is making at the same time. Yeah, I, I just want to share one of these examples from hashtag death metal oldies. One of my, my favorite okay. here is a, a run to the hills are alive with the sound of music. Yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> That's pretty good. Um, <laughs> both about refugees. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's so yeah, so there's that. There's also, yeah, events, as you said, are a big one, right? I'm at an event. I may, maybe I'm, I go to comedy festivals. I'm at a comedy festival. I want to find out where people are, what they're doing. Uh, in different cities. So like within a particular social group of friends, you might think, okay, well, this group of people uses Swarm, right? Like the Foursquare thing, or this group of people uses Instagram. And like Twitter hashtags are often a a fairly reliable way of like integrating some of that information from like people who are visiting from different places. So there's that. Um, I mean, other than that, what, like, 
Uh, no, right. I mean, it's a very you, good it's a very good way to do a kind of lightweight taxonomy so that you can group a group of uh, group a set of things together. But beyond that, like I don't know, I think the marketing. I, I mean, the, I did do one one thing. I once I once searched for a hashtag CrossFit because I was bored, uh, and I looked at it and I found one of the guys who ran. Uh, uh, CrossFit South Brooklyn, and he was asking for ideas for a Hanukkah workout. And I gave him a bunch of ideas over Twitter for a Hanukkah workout, which I think they actually did. So if you go to CrossFit South Brooklyn <laughs> and you had to do miracle thrusters, which is uh, thrust, which is seven front squats followed by a thruster, because it lasts eight times as long as a regular thruster uh, or something like that. <laughs> Or you had to do box jumps on a box with uh, Hebrew letters of the dreidel around it. Uh, you can thank my, you can thank Twitter hashtags for that, and it's capacity for connecting people. Pete, uh-huh. have you expanded this to cover all the all the other major Jewish holidays, like uh, you know, your you Rosh Hashanah? Don't go to CrossFit on Purim because drinking and kettlebells do not mix. So that's just flying all over the place. And, and, and no one do lion costumes. What's up? And when you do your box jumps, just step back off the box. Don't jump back off the box. You can injure yourself pretty bad that way, right? Indeed. Yeah. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Don't blow out your Achilles tendon. So uh, I agree with uh, you know the different benefits of hashtags that Pete was describing. You know what we just you talked about is you know um, uh, loose taxonomy kind of thing, and then finding some use out of that. But Matt, I, th- I think you're right in that um, what most of what happens on on various social media platforms that that use hashtags are not doing that and they're just sort of um ways of signaling and and saying things and and giving yourself a little bit of distance from the things that you're saying um i think hashtag blessed is probably uh the best example of that right where you're sort of saying something but not saying something um and uh, attaching a broader idea to what you're saying uh, in 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 a in a type of shorthand um which is not particularly useful at least for the for the taxonomy purposes of it but it is it is it is satisfying some other type of meaning which it sounds like um you matt do not attach a lot of value well, to. Ha- i mean hashtag blessed is is like offensive right because hashtag blessed often conflates privilege with like divine favor and it it uh you know um is i don't know politically really really undesirable i think um hashtag so blessed is ironic and is hilarious uh, <laughs> hashtag life right now. Uh, the, the hashtag on, on Instagram and photo sites are a little bit different, right? Like, I know Sheely's a big advocate of hashtag life right now and hashtag latergram because you want people to know whether the picture was taken right at the moment that you took it, right? Like, or whether it's something that you're posting after you took it sometime but I, later. But I've always Just thought the semantic content of life right now is like, oh, my life is so awesome. I can't believe that this, this awesome thing is my life right now. Right, like that's the that's the point of it, isn't it? Or am I missing something crucial? I mean, ask, go ahead. Isn't the conflation of privilege with divine favor the whole basis of the Protestant work ethic? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, your complaints I, to www.overthink. <laughs> every time I hear about hashtag blessed, I just think of Justin Bieber in front of that shrine in Japan for the the Japanese war criminals. <laughs> like yeah, that, was, that, that was that was that was pretty unfortunate. <laughs> so I had a I had a sociologist friend once explained to me that um, the way to think of hashtags is you think of all the information on the internet as like a cube. All right, you're picturing it in your mind. In order to get any useful thing out of that, 
you're going to need to organize the information somehow. Um, one way to do this would be to have like a web page, and that's a slice coming down from on top, and you sort of take one slice of the cube, and you can read everything on the web page. Hashtags. Um, make slices from all sorts of different angles. And, and the, sort of the wonderful thing about it is that anyone who's on Twitter can start a hashtag. No one may pay attention to it. But you don't need any particular kind of authority to do it. So I think that the sort of the problem with hashtags you're identifying is that most of the people who are using Twitter are horrible people because most of them aren't people. Most of them are marketers, right? Like, you know, hashtag Pepsi or whatever. Um, and then there's going to be a lot of people who are organizing information in a way that, that is kind of stupid. But any hashtag that's used by a person that you care about is probably going to be a useful a useful thing, whether it's going to be a joke thread or it's going to be something about CrossFit or, or whatever, right? Um, it's when you get to things like the Facebook hashtag satire, where it's imposed by a corporate entity, that it's going to be objectionable. But I think your problem there is really with Facebook, not with the hashtag as a sort of method of organizing information. So the interesting, the interesting thing uh, about what you said to, to me is that you talked about the hashtag as though it's a thing that has an independent entity, uh, right? And it's, it's not, right? It's a, the, it's a million or I don't know, or one, it's, it's one or more, right, uh, independent uh, phenomena that just happen to kind of self-organize into this thing. So it's the – it's um, – you know, it, right? Like, so I can't like start a hashtag as though it can, uh, as though the hashtag is a thing that has an independent existence from me or from the people who use it. I can use a hashtag and be the only one who uses it, or I can use a hashtag and then a lot of other people uh, will start to use it. But it's it's like it's an emergent phenomenon based on the individual act- actions of a lot of different people. It's not a um, it's not a thing that has a life outside of the individual instances uh, in which it yeah. exists. Yeah. Yeah, sure. And it's, it's, there's no authority over it, right? Like, so if you're the administrator of a forum on overthinking it, you can be like, all right, everybody out of the pool, you guys are using this forum wrong. I'm going to curate this and leave in only the people that are talking about the thing that I meant them to be talking about when I started the forum. With a hashtag, let's say that Blessed started as a way for somebody to, like, catalog times when he had just sneezed. You know? <laughs> and that was, that was the point of it. But then when Justin Bieber starts using it, it's going to sort of mutate. Um, and it's a, you know... Less, uh, less of a tree logic, more of a mushroom logic, where everything just spreads off in different directions. Yeah, and you see, I mean, you see this a lot, especially in, in like, political hashtags, where people sort of troll other people by using, uh, you know, by using the hashtags associated with a, with a uh, particular political... Yeah, my favorite, is, my favorite is TCOT, yeah. uh, which is what, two true conservatives of Twitter? Yeah, or top conservatives or something like that, or true conservatives, I don't know. But we're the, we're the true conservatives I know, of overthinking it. <laughs> well, that's, I think that raises another thing, which is that using a hashtag as a way of self, in a, a self-aware way of commenting on the fact that you're using social media. Right. And so, like, it's like you're signifying what kind of speech this is. Right. Like, uh, you know, hashtag Esher and Save 30 is speech that you were paid to make or bribed to make. No. Um, but yeah, it's, it's like, uh, 
you can if you had a bunch of people like especially a political one like say you have a bunch of sock puppets and astroturfers and you are paying them to put a bunch of things on social media by putting a hashtag in there you are creating the fiction that there is a conversation that is happening right and that this is something that's engaging with other people like that's one basis in which a hashtag can serve in this sort of meta social media way another way is the joke way where it's like you know like an overthinking it a lot during the 24 recaps i'd often talk about hashtag jack is back right for 24 which was the 24 live another day hashtag uh, i don't really think anyone's really you i mean people use that hashtag because they're excited about it, but I, I wasn't really using saying it because i expected anyone to actually use it i didn't actually expect someone to like use the function of that hashtag i was saying like this is part of the overall conversation i am identifying with a group of people i presume exists that are all excited about this thing that is happening and are all talking about it on the internet although i also kind of self-facingly know that they're not really talking about it on the internet as much as i might like right but it's acknowledging that it's like hey there's a thing to get excited about right um and we're kind of forcing it that, that's what a hashtag is like i'm kind of desperate right like uh, is another thing if you have a hashtag with your name on it right like um it's interesting like, that like you would you would do that not on twitter right but like speaking you would say hashtag jack is back right oh yeah i'd write in an article headline right yeah. in the yeah totally and that, yeah. Like, t- taking it out of the the forum in which it can be meaningfully used something like click on it and and collate all the other tweets that have have been using this is is a way of kind of like making it strange so you don't feel awkward about using it um in an article title or in speech the same way that you might feel awkward like actually tweeting it because you feel like if you if you tweet using a corporate hashtag everyone who goes to your twitter feed is gonna be like oh you're you're one of these shills you know you're one of these those sorts of people whereas if you like if you use it in day-to-day speech then it's you're purely commenting on this kind of culturally mandated uh like we're getting excited about this thing isn't that funny ha 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 right like by by taking it out of context you sort of ironize it yeah i would compare it to making a headline graphic that deliberately cuts out like letters or photoshops letters out of magazines and makes it look like a ransom note right like it's like that sort of similar sort of like uh hey there's this other kind of speech that exists and i'm comparing what i'm doing to that but it really obviously isn't that um that kind of thing um also you know leave two million dollars underneath the bleachers next to the so whatnot Mm. (laughs) so should we talk a little bit about this uh show selfie hashtag selfie <laughs> sure, if you want to. I mean, yeah. sort of backed into this into this topic by way of uh, hashtag hashtag on the VMAs um, and a discussion of discussion of hashtags, which is all relevant. Um, okay, so very briefly, in case you haven't heard about it, uh, selfie is the name of a new ABC sitcom that's going to uh, be airing this fall. Um, the pilot episode is available to watch on Hulu or probably other uh, other places online as well, but uh, you can watch it for free on Hulu. Um, it's basically a retelling of My Fair Lady or Pygmalion, um, if you want to sort of uh, be an uh, originalist about it, um, in which um, you replace Henry Higgins with uh, John Cho, who plays sort of a uh, stoic um, marketing executive type person who mentors um, a character who's played by Karen Gillan, who we all recently saw and enjoyed in Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, and her character is self-absorbed, self- social media obsessed, and lacking in social graces, um, and uh, sort of makes a big um, uh, social mistake, uh, basically, and, and needs her image to be uh, rehabilitated, uh, I guess, both online and offline. And so she seeks out uh, the John Cho character, the Henry Higgins character's uh, help in this. Um, so that's the basic premise of the show. Uh, without getting into too many details of, of, of how 
the show itself was. It's pretty bad. It's not sort of um, my type of thing. Um, but the question I wanted to open up to the group is um, sort of this, this premise and sort of connecting it to the broader uh, Henry Higgins or uh, my friend lady uh, kind of do a little idea. Um, and this idea that the gulf between um, this social media obsessed millennial and a responsible adult is as great as uh, what we saw in My Fair Lady, right? With the, uh, the what is it? She was, I can't remember, just flower girl, but basically very working class um, Eliza Doolittle and uh, very posh upper class Henry Higgins. Um, like, it, does that resonate to you in any way? And if you were sort of making a modern day Pygmalion or My Fair Lady, would you use social media or something else as your topic? Why can't the English teach their children how to tweet? <laughs> <laughs> that I, I mean, God, John, John Cho is forty-two, right? Like, uh, really? Yeah. Huh. But uh, the- yeah, I know he's a young-looking fella. Damn him. Um, and Karen, Karen Gillan, who is the actress who plays, uh, uh, who plays the Eliza little part. Eliza. Yeah, the character's name is Eliza Dooley, by the way. So the, the connection is just very much being hit. Uh, the hammer is really hitting that nail around the head. Is, uh, uh, Amy Pond, right? That's who she is. Is in that the, Amy Pond? Oh, did I see, what's her name in Doctor Who? Uh, she right. was in Doctor Who as well, but I don't, I don't, I'm not familiar with Doctor Who. Uh, wow. Yeah, okay. Pond. Pond. Did you say Pond? No, I said uh, Pond. I wasn't sure whether it was Amy or if I had her name wrong. They call her Pond a lot. Or like, uh, or like Pond, like the ritual of Amy Pond, Pond yeah. Uh, speaking just of keep going. No, it's pond like a pool of water. Uh-huh. Hashtag pond. Hashtag pool of water. Um, <laughs> there's something backwards about this whole concept, though, because isn't it generally that the sort of young and irresponsible people do understand social media and adults are clueless? Isn't that the narrative that, uh, that I'm supposed to understand from how, yeah. it, how it exists in the world? Although it's not the reality, because, like, you know, Facebook and Twitter, they're not things that young that are disproportionately used by young people right like we found that out years ago when it's like oh like the average age of a twitter user is creeping up towards 30 right like it's like uh it's not really i mean there's this perception that like the young kids know all this stuff that the old people just don't get but uh it turns out that like what the kids are kind of disengaging from facebook and see it as passe because their kids are all on it or their parents are all on it and all that nonsense but totally that's totally the perception well, just to like, be clear like th- this story rests less upon this idea that like, you know, the young people are nuts about social media or, or particularly good at it. It's more like this person just in general um, is a bad person or just like at least lacks, um, you know, an understanding of how to uh, function with adults in, in, in at least in an offline capacity um, and is also like is self-absorbed and, and self-obsessed and, um, you know, doesn't have real uh, offline relationships and only sort of has uh, insta acquaintances, I believe, is what one of the words that was used in the show. Wow. So she's not she's not being taught how to use social media. She's being taught how to like use anything other than social media. Precisely. Social media, yeah, like like how media. to have a conversation with a receptionist. Social That's literally one like, of the beats that happens in this episode. Wow. Social media is like the cockney slang in this in this <laughs> metaphor, right? Yeah. Yeah. What's interesting is that my fair lady if you um there's kind of two ways of looking at it, right? You can look at it and say that Eliza, at the end of the the show, um, has become better because she can speak clearly 
Um, but I don't think that really holds up too much. I mean, you admire her for having accomplished it and everything. But one of the, the things that that show tells you over and over and over again, without ever saying it out loud, is that Cockney slang is awesome. Right, or they never get into like happy rhyming slang, but like the the way that she talks is brilliant. The way that her father talks is brilliant. The way that her like whole chorus talks with the "All I want is a room somewhere" and so on is like is so fun and so great. Um, so in order for this to to work, you would need to do something where yeah, it's about someone learning how to not use social media and not like uh, put hashtags in their resume and so on. But all the time, you have to be showing how like vibrant and alive and powerful and wonderful this sort of subaltern language actually is um, if you wanted to do a successful reboot of My Fair Lady set in the world of social media. I think. That's I a great th- point. I hadn't thought about that. And the show is not doing that, by the way. Not, yeah. not in the least. And, and by the way, of course, as the conventional wisdom goes, if you want to learn how to work hard and really be a successful adult and really function really great in kind of conformist society, you should turn to Generation X for that because they're really totally awesome. And if you want to be sort of like idealistic and you want to like learn about the value of other human beings and not just of yourself, you totally ask a baby boomer because they're totally great at that, right? Like, and, and, and while you're at it, hire a marketer. Yeah. <laughs> Hire Max Martin. He can write a song for you about it. Hire Max R.R. Martin. He'll write a a gritty seven-part song that takes 30 years. (laughs) Yep. A a pop dance hit of Ice and Fire as well. (laughs) Right. Uh, All right. We're going to be back with more Overthinking It podcast next week. Until then, you can visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably doesn't doesn't deserve Country Game of Thrones. This hold is on, be a long hold on. Let me get the. I'm gonna get the piano out. And uh, <laughs> I mean, hang on. I'm digging my pedal steel guitar out from under the. <laughs> I have no such thing. <laughs> no, I don't know. I don't know the Game of Thrones thing. So can well, you guys? Can this. you guys hear that? Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, F major. Uh, <laughs> interesting because like the first when you're just doing it on the one it sounds totally country but as soon as you move to that particular harmony i was like no no this is like a movie about bootlegging in harlem in 1920